And now, The Low Post. Welcome to The Low Post Podcast on a Monday morning where the sun is shining just a little brighter. The sky is blue. And I think I know why. Clay Thompson is back with a bang. 18 shots in 20 minutes for the Golden State Warriors. Headband Clay hitting threes, hitting a runner to start the game, dunking all over the entire Cleveland Cavaliers front line, surprising himself. Clay is one of the most beloved players in the last era of NBA basketball, beloved by teammates, opponents, fans, everybody. A pure baller to talk about the scene, the Warriors, all of it. Our man on the scene last night, Mr. Om Young Masuk. Om, how are you, sir? Zach, it was awesome. Um, it was actually, I've been covering the league now since 1997, so I'm super old, way older than I look, thanks to my Asian genes. But I have to say... It, not, not immodest there, Om. <laughs> not, not, not an immodest, a very clay-like start, just stating facts. You're just yes. like state, it's, like, it's like clay being like, I'm one of the greatest shooters of all time. If it's true, it's true. Yeah, I, I have to say, I've been trying to think of any equivalent things that I've covered that was similar to last night. And it's hard to find, right? I mean, let me just start right now with the warm up. Okay. You know, I'm out there in the court watching Steph go through his thing. And so are, you know, all the fans that have come into the building and all of a sudden you hear this huge roar in the corner of the building and clay sprints out. I'm telling you, it was like a boxer going into the ring. He comes out, and the fans are roaring for him. And the building is not packed yet, okay? But it's 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 starting to fill up. And he starts circling around like a boxer in the ring, and he's feeling the love, and he's getting amped, and he's getting pumped up. He's clapping along with them. He's waving them on, and he hits his first six shots. And with every shot he hits, the roar gets louder and louder to the point that Steph actually heard it and thought, what is going on? Like I, he felt the energy and he said it sounded like the game had already started. It looked awesome. And the dunk, I mean, I'm watching at my house. I, I almost fell out of my chair screaming at the dunk. I don't think Clay. I would what I would love if we get a millisecond by millisecond by millisecond picture of Clay's brain. And when in the moment he realized I might try to dunk this and I might actually be able to do it because that was like, and the bench reaction. I don't know if you could see from where you were sitting. I don't know if you saw it on TV. I thought Steph was just going to run like through the crowd, like a WWE wrestler like this. Sometimes they come in through the crowd. I thought he was just going to start running, eating popcorn in the inside. He like completely lost control of himself. It was amazing. The, the crowd wanted anything they could get from clay to the point where, okay, so let, let's start with the, the starting lineup was awesome. OK, they, you know, they, they start off their normal video. And I think you know this about me, Zach. I am super into game ops. So, like, I love going to arena and watching the the opening videos. I, I do it. I mean, I watch like the acts, all that stuff during time. So, but the, they open the video with this little clay video and it, it just, you know, gets you pumped up. And then, you know, you, you see Draymond go through it. And, you know, we'd heard he was a late scratch, but he was still going to go through the starting lineup. And I was like, oh, that's cool. And then Steph goes and you're like, oh, now it's Clay. And, you know, they start cheering so loud. You, you, you can't even hear the announcer really start to go through the whole, you know, where Clay's from and how tall he is and all that. And then Clay, you can see him looking up and he's soaking it all in. And so then they go through the starting lineup and it's really emotional. And then Clay does the, 
he sprints toward the basically the padding underneath the basket and jumps and kind of gives it a body check. The crowd erupts when he does that. <laughs> so you knew as soon as this guy takes his first shot, this place is going to explode. And he scores on a driving runner in traffic. And Clay actually thought, yeah, I thought when I hit that, it was going to be one of those nights where I was going to be unconscious. <laughs> but the dunk, the dunk, it's set up where he was one-on-one on Jared Allen. And I, I remember watching this and I was like, okay, he started missing shots that he normally makes. Was he Five allowed? straight, five straight yeah. misses. It was like, uh, you had this moment because you're rooting. And we're going to talk later about why Clay is so popular. But it's just as a neutral person, 900 whatever days off, two traumatic injuries in a row for a three-time champion who's had so many iconic moments, you're rooting for him. I don't care what, I don't even care if you're a fan of of the Cavaliers. You're rooting for Clay Thompson. And when he misses those five in a row, you're like, oh man, maybe this is going to be like a one of 16, like in the <laughs> interviews afterwards, you're going to be like, yeah, I got a long way to go. And then, and then this happens. So continue. So he starts missing, you know, he misses three three-pointers. He starts missing like little turnaround jumpers that he's normally making mid-range and they're short. And so you're just kind of like, okay, well, you know, his conditioning should be good. It shouldn't be his legs. Of course, he's been off for two and a half years. Um, and his shooting, we all thought was going to be there because by all accounts, He'd been shooting great. I mean, Juan Toscano Anderson told us on Saturday uh, that there was a scrimmage that Clay was in, and he scored 12 points in 43 seconds. He said, I looked up, we took a timeout, and I go, for only 43 seconds gone by, this guy scored 12 points. He's like, I can't believe we have two of these guys that can do this on the team, you know? So you you heard that, like, his shooting was was going to be there, but then he starts missing these shots. And so then when it when it comes to the dunk, He's got Jared Allen on him, and I noticed I'm like, okay, well, Clay started to drive a little bit more, and so he's going to take Jared Allen, which he did. Jared Allen reaches, Clay blows by him, and then it's like the sea opens up, and so now he's going for the dunk, and then all of a sudden, Dylan Windler and and Laurie Marketing come over and actually challenge the dunk, <laughs> like, and I, and I and he dunks over both of them, and the place just exploded. And Clay had said, yeah, you know what? I didn't dunk once in all of my scrimmages. Uh, and the Warriors, you know, back when when DeMarcus Cousins was making his comeback with them, I, my assignment was basically to cover what they had called boogie season, which was basically at, he would scrimmage with all the coaches and who, whatever bodies they could scrounge up. And they called it boogie season because basically these were his games to let up to his return. And so I'm sure Clay season was the same way. So when Clay said, that he didn't dunk once in all the scrimmages, and then he surprised himself by dunking this time. I was like, wow, I couldn't believe it. You mentioned Juan Toscano Anderson. This is his third season with the Warriors, his third season. He's never played a game with Klay Thompson yeah. before. It's amazing some of these guys have been around the Warriors for so long. Last night was their first night with Klay. I'm glad you mentioned the starting lineup thing because, Om, I am with you. I am a big fan of theatrical starting lineup introductions like the Bulls one from the 90s is obviously the gold standard you and I grew up with that it yeah. gives me goosebumps every time I hear it um and I I actually blame Steph Steph is an all-time great teammate he's an all-time great player he has punted on the theatricality of the starting five announcement and look th- th- this is routine for Steph is it like for me if I got introduced once in an NBA arena it would be the greatest one of my life for Steph it's every game and he's got two MVPs the whole thing 
when they get to him, he's the anchor leg usually. Yeah. And it's like from David. By the time they've said the word from, he's already in the huddle. Hi, yes. he's, like, I, he doesn't do that. the – he's killed that. the whole drum. I'm like, Steph, I hate just, those guys. Just, just, <laughs> like, why are you doing this? Come on. So for Clay to bring it back last night and be ultra theatrical – about it, I thought um, I thought was cool. I thought the Draymond thing was cool, and I actually, you know, you you wrote about his press conference um, after the game. I thought, I mean, one of the reasons everybody loves Clay is that he's just unfailingly honest. He, there is no varnish, there is no brand, there is no anything, and for him to say it was pretty freaking close to winning a championship. It's kind of verges on like, whoa, the championship thing is supposed to be sacred, winning above all else. It was a very honest, revealing moment about how much he's come through. And then the thing he said about the fans, he said, you had a whole extended quote, and part of it was, I feel for them and they feel for me. And I could feel the empathy that they were expressing toward me for the last two years. I, you were in the room. I, was it in the room? Was it mm-hmm. was, was, like, could, I, I wonder if you could describe it because this is like, it feels like yesterday that Clay Thompson hit 11 threes against the Oklahoma City Thunder. That was a half decade ago. <laughs> I mean, he's these. This is a decade now with these guys. It's a special thing. The connection that he has with the fan base. Can you can you talk about what kind of question prompted that? How he how he looked? How he how he was talking? So leading up to all of this, um, you could tell that a lot of the players knew that Clay needed this, um, and they were looking forward to the love and outpouring he was going to get. Steph had said that when they decided on the starting lineup to let him go last, to let Clay go last, um, he said the moment uh, it, it worked, like basically it paid off. It, it, it was executed perfectly. He knew that this was going to be a moment that everything Clay had been through for two years, he needed to hear that love from the fans and he deserved that moment and it worked. And you could tell this is the love affair between Clay and the Bay Area. I mean, I'm just trying to think like, you know, because I spent most of my career in New York and I was thinking like when we started this pod, have I ever seen anything like this? Uh, you know, Patrick Ewing, my second year on the Knicks beat as Frank Isola's backup at the New York Daily News, Patrick Ewing early in the season crashes and wrecks his wrist in Milwaukee. This is the season that the, that the Knicks end up going to the finals in 99 in the lockout shortened season. Patrick Ewing actually came back and the Knicks fans were like, well, we don't want Patrick Ewing back because we think it's going to ruin Latrell Sprewell and Allen Houston and Marcus Camby's chemistry. And so the beloved Patrick Ewing, you know, there was, like, I guess, always a love-hate relationship. They weren't exactly thrilled he was back. This is 100% totally different on the opposite side of the spectrum because this is a homegrown guy like Patrick Ewing was, but they love Clay. I mean, the love affair between Clay and the Bay Area, Clay – Unlike Patrick Ewing, he's just so lovable in just every little thing he does. And he sometimes he doesn't even mean to do it. Speaking of game ops, Zach, you know how they always have those guys do those little like, and I like watching this on uh, media day where they have them kind of act like in front of a video and they try to pump up a crowd, you know, and usually it's and like. They, you, and they use it for, for games yeah, later. Yeah. Usually it's so unnatural for guys to do that because they're just screaming in front of a camera with no music and everything. Sometimes they're holding a basketball. I always wonder, <laughs> like, why are you, I know you're a basketball player, but in what context would you just be holding a basketball <laughs> and then yelling at the crowd yeah. to like start yeah. cheering? So Clay's shows up in the middle of the game and I'm watching it and I'm cracking up. 
because he's doing these little moves where he's trying to do like that little Michael Michael Jackson kick step dance and he's like getting into it and you can tell he's like genuinely giving effort and it's just like anything he does it's like that's he's so level for it. so we get to the press conference and he's asked like about the starting lineup introduction and what did you think and he starts to go into you know what this was worth it two years of being on that shuttle board rehabbing um constantly you know working on my body all of that the blood sweat and tears it was worth it that moment really made it worth it because every second that i experienced tonight it was worth it all and so when you hear that you're just like wow and he was like yeah sure i have my doubts like anybody of whether or not i would be as as good as i was before could i come back all these things and he said everything made it worth it with what he experienced with the fans Spring is the best time to add new challenges to your training just in time for summer and warmer days. It's also the best time of the year to take a new look at your fitness routine, dial it up a notch, and continue powering on. Peloton's varying class lengths were designed with your personalized training in mind. Whether you'd like to add a 10-minute course session at the end of your strength class or take a 60-minute power zone ride to increase your endurance, Peloton classes help you focus on your needs and goals. They are also made to challenge you with a variety of classes like boot camps, boxing, okay? full body strength, marathon training, all created to grow your skills or push you to improve in what you already excel in. Peloton's expert coaches and nonstop vibes, hashtag vibes, will push you to new levels of strength and endurance, keeping you on your toes while giving you the professional coaching you need. And with a wide variety of options, whether you prefer to run outdoors, row, or ride at home, or strength train at the gym, Peloton has something for you. Get your head start on summer with Peloton at onepeloton.com. That's onepeloton.com. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Well, let's talk about let's talk about that, uh, how he looked. I thought he looked better than I expected him to look. I thought he looked great. I mean, look, the shot is the shot. My thing, I kept getting asked on on my podcast and others, like, well, what if Clay's only like 80% of himself? Like, do we need to recalibrate expectations for Clay? Jeff Van Gundy was was talking a lot about this. You know, I don't know what our expectations should be. And and vis-a-vis that, like, well, how much will he really nudge up the warrior ceiling if he's only like 80% of old Clay? And I'm like, I think we need to – it's not like – Clay. if you just look at it like this, like Clay is coming back and he's not taking minutes from a star. You're getting 30 minutes or 35 minutes, however it ends up being when it counts – of Clay Thompson and like six of those are Jordan Poole and five of those are Otto Porter and six of them are Nemanja Bialica and five of them are Andre Iguodala. Like if he's just better than those guys, then it's a it's a big net plus. And like he already walked onto the floor. I thought he looked awesome. The shot is the shot. I thought he looked mobile and and pretty fast. He's got to get back into the rhythm of the offense. But you start you started to see some of that. The opening play of the second half was a Steph Clay pick and roll where he flashed he fit, flared out and then made a long two out of it um defensively 
it was interesting to me that they put Wiggins on Darius Garland and put Clay on lesser threats like Lowry Markinen uh, and, and Lamar Stevens and Jetty Osmond. But I, I thought he looked, I thought he looked pretty good. I thought he looked a little unsure of himself when he got switched on to Garland, like he was giving him almost too much space as if he was afraid of getting blown by. But he bodied up Evan Mobley pretty well. He moved his feet pretty well. I mean, like I don't know what what you thought or what the the players said after the game, but to me, from afar, he looked pretty much like Clay Thompson. That it's it's uh, it's hard to imagine that a guy who does not need the ball and doesn't dribble very much and doesn't really have the ball in his hands a lot can make other guys better. But I think his impact on the team will do that because he's going to open up so much more for them. And there Steph. were face guarding him last night, Ohm, away yeah. from the ball, like when he even when he was just standing around. And I thought he did more standing around yes. a little bit than he yes. will do. When he's back in the, but like he was standing, and there was a couple possessions in the first half, I think, on the left sideline when he was standing there, and Jetty Osmond was like hugging him, and and the, that's it, right? That's what you're, that that's enough right there. Yeah, he, I would say that uh, the offense looked a little stagnant at times naturally when he was on the floor early, especially because it, you know obviously he's just coming back; it's not going to be as seamless. I thought it might have been even more seamless just because the dude doesn't need the ball in his hands. Um, but I think he'll get that down. The shot. You know, look, he missed a lot of shots that I thought he would make. He had one little spurt where he scored seven points. He hit three shots in a row, two mid-range and one three. And you could tell he was starting to get cooking a little bit. And so I think the shot will be there. The athleticism and the mobility was what surprised me. Defensively, he said he thinks he's, he can get back to being that elite defender. And he can start to, you know, he felt good on that, from that standpoint. I think that's where we're really going to kind of see how good he can be because he hasn't been challenged from that standpoint. I mean, the Cavs, they were going to be overwhelmed from the get-go with the way that building was. So um, they they were not going to really kind of challenge the Warriors. But I that's where I want to see how Clay's going to do. But Clay did say, listen, that dunk really kind of showed me, you know, how I, I – he said he said something like, even though I didn't dunk in scrimmages, under the bright lights, I felt like I had a little more bounce. And so that was a big indicator for me of what I can do. And he said – from here on out, it's all going to be on up. And, you know, they, the, the Warriors were like joking. He, he got 18 shots up in 20 minutes. And Steph said, that's so Clay Thompson. <laughs> but I think they were happy to see that because, and I think probably more than anyone else, Steph has got to be happy because he had really been struggling coming into this game. I mean, he had that epic two-game slump where he had shot the worst he had ever shot in a two-game span. Last night, he opens up the game. I think he hit like his first four threes or something like that and then kind of cooled off. But I think Steph is probably looking forward to having somebody there to really kind of shift the defense off a little bit from him. I I agree. I think the timing is just perfect for the Warriors because they kind of have hit the doldrums of the season where the hot start and, oh, Steph's, Steph and Draymond are back and there's clearly like they're playing great and this is they're blitzing the league. That's kind of worn off. In the last month, so since December 13th, so almost a month, they're actually 24th in offense. For the season, they're down to 11th in offense. And I think they need a little juice, and like Clay's going to bring that. I actually didn't even mind the turnarounds and the fading mid-rangers because I wonder, I'd actually be curious to ask Steve Kerr about this. This is basically the most mathematically optimal quote unquote golden state's shot selection has ever been in terms of like they take the second most threes they take a lot of shots at the rim they take almost no mid-range shots 
I almost wonder if Steve would, if Coach Kerr would want like a little bit more variety because he's had a soft spot for that mid range game. When they had KD, they shot it a lot. I think Clay could sort of give him a, a little bit of optionality. But the shot that got me the most excited, if I'm the Warriors fan, was the three he hit in the fourth quarter relatively late, a pick and roll on the left side of the floor where his guy ran into a pick. Jared Allen didn't come up far enough, and he just jacked a pick and roll off the dribble going left, jacked a three off a pick and roll going left, and it made it. Like, that's that's there, man. That's not going that's not going away. But, yeah, their offense has hit a little bit of a rut. They're in a shooting slump. They're not getting to the line. They have the worst turnover rate in the league in the last month. And I think Clay's going to give them a little juice and just put everybody – in their right place. Jordan Poole goes to the bench. Wiggins can still be the kind of defensive stopper. And now they have this closing lineup, I, I guess, of Steph, Clay, Wiggins, Draymond, and just pick a guy, you know, who fits into that. Maybe Wiggins isn't in it every night, but, you know, they're 30 and 9. And, and this is, this, I just think it's great timing for them for all the reasons you just hinted at. And what we haven't seen, but we did not get to see last night, lost in kind of the hoopla, was that Draymond did not play. And Draymond, so, you know, Clay had been scrimmaging with, he, he, Steve Kerr had said a pivotal point in Clay's return was the day when the Warriors game against the Nuggets was postponed due to COVID in Denver. So they decided to scrimmage in Denver. And Steve had said, Clay being on the floor with everybody, it was a moment for the team that they needed to see and feel. But, but Draymond wasn't there. He was in COVID protocols, I believe. So Draymond, his first time to scrimmage with Clay, from what I gather, was Saturday. And Draymond had told Mark Spears, like, you know, I felt like I was <laughs> I felt like I was just sleeping on an electrical current, basically, on a wire that basically I was so excited to be on the floor again with Clay. And Clay had pointed out, yeah, you know, I can't wait to be on the floor again with Draymond because he makes my life so much easier with all the screens he sets that I'm that much more wide open. So, you know, I, I can't wait to see those guys again. It should not take long for them to kind of get that feel back together where Draymond's going to be opening up Clay even more. Yep. And and look, Draymond doesn't want to shoot threes anymore. Kevon Looney doesn't. Kevon Looney will take a jumper every three games and they've actually looked pretty good. 18 boards last night. Uh, he's he's playing great. Kevon's playing. He's doing my 10 things last week. But th- to start two guys who don't want to shoot or can't shoot is very rare in the NBA in 2022. And one of the things that enables the Warriors to do that, and obviously Draymond is a Hall of Fame player. He's one of the greatest passers for his position of all time, greatest defender of, of the last 10 years maybe. Um, but when you have Steph and Clay running around the way they do, and it's – I know we all know this, but when you watch other ball-dominant players, it's just drilled out. Like nobody plays like Steph. Nobody moves – Steph moves like he expects to get the ball all the time. It's, it's almost like he has the ball when he doesn't have the ball. It turns those guys into – it makes those non-shooters threats at all times because they can become screeners for the two greatest shooters ever. And if you're not up on that screen, you are dead. And you mentioned the defense. That's, you know, the Warriors, oh, their offense has been kind of slumping. I think the other side of the story is oh, their defense has sustained. They're still number one in the league in defense by a lot. They're number four in the last month when their offense is slumped. Like, I think – are they getting a little lucky with opponents shooting? Maybe opponents are shooting 33% on threes. But I don't. I, I look at this team. I'm like the defense. I think we have to conclude this is the best or second best defense in the NBA. Like that. That is set. I don't think that's a fluke. And if that's not a fluke, if they're that good defensively, now their rebounding has started to fade. And that was the red flag. Are they going to play this small? Can they rebound? That started to fade a little bit. 
But I think the flip side of all their offense is slumping. Steph's in a slump. Did the three-point record screw him up? Their defense is as as rugged as ever. And look, I think uh, you know Draymond and Kerr have said that that a lot of people have always overlooked their defense during their championship years. Uh, Draymond will always remind you about that. Um, I like the pieces they have. You know, I love that Otto Porter signing this season. I just felt like he's such a good fit for them. Um, and I think their defense is going to be there. That's why I'm not really worried about their offensive struggles because I feel like their offense is going to come. It's going to be there. They're probably just going through this mid-season kind of little rut um, where they are waiting to kind of get Clay back, and now they got him. And listen, Wiseman's around the corner. Wiseman is going to uh, he's going to go on the trip with the Warriors, and he's scheduled to have his first contact practice. So that's going to be another interesting wrinkle to see how he fits in. And Steph had said, look, we got about 43 games left in the season. We still kind of don't know what we are yet, but we got 43 games to figure it out and figure out our rotations and figure out, you know, our 10-man rotation and what we're going to use, which which works best, all these things. And I think he's really looking forward to it. What's your favorite Clay thing? Anything. Let's look what's your favorite Clay persona. What's your favorite Clay tick? Like when you talk about why – what is it about this guy that fans gravitate to you, to, to him rather? What what sticks out to you? Well, I'm a dog guy, so I love the fact Rocco. that he's a dog guy too, Rocco. And he said on Saturday he actually took his boat out and went to – he took it to practice, which I just find fascinating because like I used to be fascinated with the fact that when Miami first built their arena – you know, the new arena, American Airlines, and like Pat Riley was taking his boat to the arena, you know, like I just thought, oh, what a life. And so here's Clay, you know, he says, oh, I took the boat. It was a beautiful day. And then I took Rocco out to the park. And I'm just thinking like Clay at the dog park just amazes me. You go to a dog park and you see Clay Thompson sitting there. And he's just like, he just probably is a man of the people. He's probably so approachable. He's just so, he's kind of like, it's weird. He's lovable, but he's kind of like a little weird at the same time. And I think that's why he's he's so beloved because he just seems like a normal guy. Was Pat Riley's hair gel impervious to like breezes on a fast moving boat? Like, is that that's a head to head battle? I like to see Pat Riley's hair versus a speedboat. Like, is it it, it that a speedboat level wind must be able to uh, shift that hair in ways that it normally does not well, shift? Come on, Zach. I mean, okay. So in Miami, you have to imagine, right? Even though Pat Riley probably wasn't on this type of boat. But do you imagine him like in Miami Vice on that little two man speedboat thing that they do that they would show in Miami Vice with Don Johnson? Remember, Don Johnson's hair was unflappable, too, in Miami Vice. So I'm sure he had enough product in there that nothing could touch it. My favorite clay. I have a lot of favorite clay things. I one of my favorite things is and I've interviewed Steve Kerr and Bruce Fraser uh, about this a lot is they tried and they would even break in they would even have film sessions in which they would highlight to Steph and Clay situations in which if they just pump faked and kind of jumped into their defender like everyone else does oh here's like three free throws you could have gotten right here here's a couple free throws and Steph would like dabble in and sometimes try and Clay was just like nah that's not basketball like i'm not i'm not doing that like that's that's bullshit i'm just going to if i shoot and it goes in great if it doesn't go in i didn't deserve to get it. he just would not do it. The coaches couldn't get him to do it. They even tried to teach him. Uh, young people probably don't remember Mahmoud Abdul Raouf. You mm-hmm. and I do. Mm-hmm. He had this crazy pump fake where he would take both his hands and raise them like almost all the way up <laughs> with the ball. It looked like he was doing aerobics or something. Yeah. And they even showed that pump fake 
to Steph and Clay to try to see like this is like if you do it really ridiculously, that can work too. And there's actually a game in which Nick Young did it for the Warriors in the Nick Young era, and the bench went bananas because they all had seen the Mahmoud Abdul-Rael film. But Clay was like, nah, I'm not doing And like the other thing is he's just a killer. He's just an absolute killer. And it's that combination of seeming like a, a man of the people, as you put it, but also being a killer on the court and being a killer for all the right reasons. Like he never, as soon as they got Durant home, if you remember, there was this, well, who's going to sacrifice? Is Clay going to become unhappy? Not only did he never, he never sacrificed at all. His numbers barely changed. He never became unhappy. It was the idea that he would become unhappy was so ridiculous to him (laughs) that he would call, he would, he would just literally in interviews be like, I don't understand. We're winning. All I want to do is be here and win and play my role. Like he just couldn't – for a guy who just cares about winning. And yeah, obviously he cares about individual accolades and all that. But he really just loves the experience of winning. He just – I don't know if you remember some of those quotes. But he would just be puzzled by the entire idea that he could be unhappy because Kevin Durant had joined his team. You know, the the anecdote you just gave about Mah- Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf, which is – you know, listen, kids. If you go and – Google Mahmoud Abdul-Roof or even Chris Jackson, okay? And you see it, you're just like, he's the Steph Curry before Steph Curry. If he had played in this era, he would have been unbelievable. But you got me thinking now that if Steph and Clay had ever kind of just done the whole, like, let me draw contact and get to the foul line three times, dude, statistically, what the game would have looked like, what the record books would have looked like, if those two actually kind of did the whole James Harden and look for contact all the time, what would we be looking at right now of how their numbers would be different, you know? But it's it's against the spirit of the game in Clay Thompson's eyes. It's against the ethos of how he plays basketball. And and all he and he still yet despite all that, you know, he plays secretly, like we all know Draymond Green. He can rattle off all the players' name before him in the draft. He's bitter about it. Yeah. So is Clay. Clay's the same way. Like he knows. He used to joke when the Cavs and the Warriors would play each other in the finals. He used to joke that the Cavs drafted the wrong Thompson like, <laughs> they, like because they were in the same draft. He knows Kyrie was drafted ahead of him. He remembers. Uh, he know, He's bitter. He's still bitter, and he's told me about this in interviews, that Jimmer Fredette was considered the best shooter in that draft. He's like, hell no. Jimmer Fredette, I'm the best shooter. I was always the best shooter in the draft. And one of my favorite stories that I got when I was doing a, like a mini profile on Clay during one of the finals is, the Spurs, I don't know what pick the Spurs had that year, but they brought Clay in for a, two different workouts. The last one was like a secret right before the draft workout. And Chip England, who's known as the shooting coach, he's not just a shooting coach, he's a really good assistant coach. He told, I don't know if he told Pop or RC, but he told the higher-ups in San Antonio, and it was something that like just blew them away. He said, this guy, he's got, he's got something in him in terms of how much he cares about winning. He's got something in him that reminds me of Manu Ginobili. And if you know the Spurs, yep. you know that people who were around for that era do not use that name lightly. <laughs> and like he's he's just Clay is a he's absolutely fearless. He's a killer. And it's just awesome to have him back. You know, uh there was one story I forgot to tell you. So Steve Kerr was telling us on Saturday entering the game, uh, what this moment was gonna be like for him with everything he has seen in his career. And he was like, yeah, you know, like what I've played, I've been fortunate to play like a thousand games in my life. Uh, I coach maybe 500 or whatever. And he goes, but this is going to be one of those moments. There's few games in your basketball life 
that you will remember for the rest of your life. And this is going to be a moment I remember for the rest of life just because of who Clay is. And so we had asked him, like, well, is there anything that's going to be, like, kind of similar to this that you've experienced before? And he goes, yeah, you know, Michael Jordan coming back, um, you know, that the first time. He goes, yeah, he was out for two years, and, and uh, but not like Clay. You know, it was of his own doing because he retired. He goes, but I remember, <laughs> he goes, the other day I was thinking about this because everybody keeps asking me, you know, what are you going to do with Clay, right? And he goes, I remember Judd Bushler and I were driving to the airport to go to Indy, and I said to Judd, what's Phil Jackson going to do? You know, that Michael's coming back now. He hasn't been back for only a couple weeks, barely been able to practice. And Judd goes, Steve, Steve, it's a general rule that when you have your own statue outside the arena, you start him. <laughs> well, I, I was asked that question a lot. Oh, uh, uh, and, and, you know, I've talked to people within the Warriors all the time, and I was asked, you know, are they going to bring him off the bench? You think they're like, no. Like, Jordan Poole is going to be the sixth man. Clay is going to start. This, they're not going to mess around with like a 10 game phasing in period. He's going to start and he's going to continue starting. And I thought he looked awesome, all things considered. And if he's, I don't know what percentage of old clay is reasonable to expect, but I, it, look, it's a long season, right? Like we got to see how his body recovers. This is one game out of, they got 40, whatever left and then playoffs. I, I think, it, I, and Jeff Van Gundy and I had this discussion a couple weeks ago. Are, who's the favorite to come out of the West right now? You got to pick, boom, rapid fire. He picked the Warriors, and so did I. And I, I think seeing Clay last night only kind of bolstered that. I, I think Phoenix is awesome. Utah's awesome. We'll see what the Lakers might be able to become. The Grizzlies are just rolling and rolling and rolling. But I think if you're asking me to pick right now who's making the finals, if everyone's healthy, I'm picking the Warriors. Yeah, I, I can't. There, I can't see anybody else in the West challenging them if clay thompson shoots the way that we think he's going to be able to shoot and remember you know he's been spending the last two years all he could probably do was shoot for the majority of that time he's going to start knocking down these shots and he doesn't need the ball to be able to score and make those shots in this offense i just think he's going to make them so much better and we haven't even talked about like will they play him when steph rests and all this all these kind of mechanical things that have time to get sorted i i do think phoenix utah and maybe one of those other teams can challenge the warriors for sure it could even beat the warriors but i if you have to me to pick i'm picking the warriors right om om young was going back to to la to reconvene i guess with the clippers for a little while but you've been bouncing around your coverage is awesome and i'm very jealous you got to be in the arena last night uh-huh. and feel i bet it shook i bet it shook after that dunk it, it, you know, I had a great seat, too. They put us in the Cavaliers um, broadcast booth because I guess Cavs, like you were saying, you know, they, they didn't send they didn't send their broadcasters on the road, I guess. Um, and so I had like a bird's eye view of like center court. It was amazing. It was amazing. the dunk. I saw it happen. You could see it happen like before it was going to happen. That's how good the seats were. <laughs> and so like you could see it start the, the, the sea start to really part there. And I was like, oh, my God, he is not going to dunk this. Is he Is he going to dunk this? Is he going to? Oh, my God. He just threw down on two calves. <laughs> and, and I'll tell you, right, as a fellow Game Ops fan, I'll bet you that's in the pregame montage for the next oh. Warriors home game. It's already going to be spliced in. Um, Hopefully I'll see you down the line, man. Stay safe and uh, keep up the great work. Thank you, my man. Vivid Seats wants to get you to the games you love this spring. Experience every pitch, assist, and game-winning shot live and in person. And the best part, each transaction is a step toward a free 11th ticket with Vivid Seats rewards. Score unbeatable perks like free tickets, surprise seat upgrades, and annual birthday deals. As the official ticketing partner of ESPN, Vivid Seats is offering you $20 off 
your first $200 ticket purchase with code LOW. That's code LOW, L-O-W-E, my last name, the name of this podcast. Visit vividseats.com or download the app today. Vivid Seats, experience it live. For the ones who get it done, Granger offers high-quality supplies and solutions for every industry as well as access to product specialists who have the knowledge and experience to answer your toughest questions. Plus, their commitment to being your safety partner can help you keep your facility safe and your people safer. Call or click Granger.com or just stop by. All right, it's time for a bastardized version of what was a pre-COVID tradition where I would go to the great city of Toronto, Ontario, Canada for the holidays to visit my in-laws every year and do a three-person State of the Raptors podcast with Eric Kareen of The Athletic and Bruce Arthur of the Toronto Star. My trip to Toronto didn't happen last year. It was on the books this year, canceled at the last minute due to this never-ending storm of life that we lead. And Bruce Arthur is now a, basically a COVID reporter, so he's dead to me as, <laughs> as a basketball person. But you know what? I want to go to Toronto eventually, and I want to talk about the Raptors. So we're doing the holiday tradition a little bit after the holidays. From The Athletic, Eric Kareen is here and not even filling in for it, replacing Bruce Arthur. Bruce Arthur, you're out. From Sportsnet, formerly of The Athletic, I don't know what the hell they did letting him leave. Blake Murphy, you you guys you guys cover the Raptors. There's nobody who knows the Raptors better than you guys. And there's and Blake knows the Raptors 905. He's tweeting out 905 trade rumors news. Guys, I miss you. I miss the Firkin pubs. I miss the street food. I miss the CN Tower. I miss, don't miss the weather. I miss the aquarium. I, I missed. I, I miss everything about Toronto. How are you guys? How is life up there? I feel like I'm on. I'm on. I'm on the phone with like, uh, like somewhere all the way across the world. How is it I up there? I think the last time we did this, we did this in my old apartment, uh, and since then we've moved. But the good news is we are now six a six minute walk from a Firkin pub. Uh, so next time, whether it's near your in laws or or near me, we will have a Firkin readily available for your. Uh, for your patronage. What's the pub slash restaurant near the Air Canada Center, or which I will never ever refer to as the Bankopolis or whatever it's called? It's like a, is there a loose moose, a moose of some kind? Is there a moose pub of some kind near? I like that place. I think there is. On yeah, the front, nodding on like front, you know what I'm talking on about. On front, the loose moose. Yeah. Yeah. There's a moose, yeah. a moose. I love the loose moose. Yeah. It's a good, uh, it's a good post game. Need to need to make sure you have a table and don't want to. It's basically if you if you lay down the law of look, guys, we can't go to the Firkin again. <laughs> then you go to Loose Moose. <laughs> That's what it is. I have my po- I will not divulge it, but I have my post game Raptors drinks locations near the ACC. I miss it so much. I hope to get back up there in the spring. But for now, the Raptors quietly under the cover of. Canadian darkness with nobody watching them have won six games in a row, albeit against some teams that didn't bring some of their best players to Canada or didn't have some of their best players available in the U.S. Are 20 and 17. They are a game out of sixth in the loss column. That is the, of course, play in avoidance spot. They are only, if you really want to be optimistic, and my New Year's resolution was to be more optimistic, they are two games in the loss column out of third in the Eastern Conference. This is the secretly the weirdest, strangest, craziest, sometimes ugly, sometimes beautiful, sometimes a kind of beautiful that is also ugly. There is no team playing basketball quite like the Toronto Raptors right now. They have all they are playing lineups as you guys know 
they have their starting lineup is Fred Van Vliet and like basically four dudes who are between six six and six nine. They're starting second and fourth quarters with five dudes who are between six seven and six ten. It's crazy future basketball. But I'll start with you, Blake. Let's start here. Just zoom all the way out. Raptors are twenty and seventeen. I feel like we've been playing like a 10-year game of when will Masai Ujiri break up the Raptors and uh, he didn't break up the Raptors to get Kawhi Leonard, did the opposite. He doubled down after years of like, when will they get rid of this team? Um, then Kawhi leaves and they have this wonderful season with, with the remnants of the championship team losing the second round. They don't trade Kyle Lowry at the trade deadline last season. They hold on to him. They turn down offers from X, Y, and Z. We can talk about that. Trade him. Uh, in the offseason, signed and traded him to Miami for Precious Achua and Goran Dragic, who is a member of the Toronto Raptors. And everyone goes into this season, I don't know, Siakam, interesting trade piece. Boy, Fred Van Vliet, what could they get for him on the open market? And here they are. They're both on the team. They're both good. They're also seven to eight years older than Scotty Barnes, who is the, the face of the franchise, I guess, going forward. OG and Obi's in between all of them. So, Blake... What is this team doing, big picture, and what should they be doing? Yeah, it's a, it's a little strange because when they traded for Kawhi, we've been setting this up since day one of that trade that, hey, once that gamble's done, if Kawhi leaves, which he's very likely to do, there's going to be a bit of a weird transition period because you have this young core, and then you'll have guys like Kyle and Marcus Gasol and Serge Ibaka kind of aging out, but... That run it back year without Kawhi, they were better than anyone expected. And then Kyle got his extension, and then you know some of the young guys came on, maybe a little uh, a little more than they thought. So they keep. I think part of it is Masai keeps creating these rosters that are a little better than they expected. Um, like you go back to 2015 when they first had the the potential pivot point. Uh, he decides not to break it up, and then they go on the Eastern Conference Finals run the next year. And then they start to hit a wall again, but then the bench mob clicks and suddenly they have four young guys and it looks like, oh, well, maybe there's enough depth here to do something. And then there's the Kawhi season, obviously. Um, so now you have this situation where I do think that this was supposed to be a bit of a, an evaluation year and like kind of year three of that transition phase. They punted on having cap space this past offseason, using that instead to absorb Drogic so that they could get a Chua and we can chop up whether that was the right move or not but that's what like 2021 was their quote-unquote cap space offseason the way this core shaped up um so I do think part of this was hey even if you want to move off of Siakam you have to rehabilitate his value a little bit selling him after a bad year where he had COVID and he had shoulder surgery wouldn't have made and, sense and, come, and coming off a bubble where mm -hmm. he was maybe the most disappointing player in the entire NBA yeah, and you, so you don't, like, from a pure cold asset standpoint, you don't want to sell a guy in that situation. Um, so there was an element of that, and then also an element of, you know, they got a little lucky on lottery night, and for a lot of teams, it's like, hey, maybe we need to take two, three years, get a couple lottery picks, try to land that one guy. Well, the Raptors kind of think that they did that with one dip into the lottery. They got the ceiling raiser. They got the window extender in Scotty Barnes. So... I do, I definitely understand, like, Fred Van Vliet is going to turn 28 next month. Pascal Siakam is going to turn 28 before the playoffs. These guys are in the peak phase of their development curve and will be in kind of the, the late peak to decline phase in not too long. Um, but I do wonder if the Raptors think if Barnes comes along quickly, 
if they can open up a window with this group still. Because you have two fringe all-star guys in Van Vliet and Siakam, an elite, elite, elite role player in OG, and now a rising prospect in, in Barnes. I do wonder if they think they can pry this window open while still having Siakam and Van Vliet in the mix. All right, before I put that question to you, Eric, let's let's zoom out, as Blake just said. Number one, they had the accidental, semi-accidental, semi-became-on-purpose, one-year tank job in Tampa Bay. Very convenient. No fans. It worked out as well as they could have hoped, other than the misery of living there, away from their families and their home for a year. And they got a guy who's probably second in Rookie of the Year voting, if we voted now, would be second on my ballot. Maybe he becomes, I mean, there's still hope that he's their point guard of the future. Maybe he becomes their point forward of the future. Maybe he's just a really, really good, all fringy all-star guy, but we don't know. But Scotty Barnes is really good. Uh, Anunobi is only 24. He's averaging 19 points a game. Blake just described him as a, a really, really good role player. I think he and the team have ambitions for him to join that all, fringy all-star Van Vliet Siakam group. Siakam, for all the guff he has taken for the last two years, and yes, I say guff, he took guff, is back to playing a different game, fewer threes, more twos, but back to playing at, I think, pretty close to the all-NBA level he was at two seasons ago. I think his defense in the last month has been about as good as I've ever seen it. So, so Eric, what am I missing? What have I, have I not mentioned anyone that should be mentioned? And where do you stand on the sort of what are they what what are they doing what should they be doing it seems like Blake's answer is sort of like just kind of keep rolling like why overthink it the team's pretty good and if you're pretty good they've already proven we can stay pretty good pretty good pretty good be opportunistic and go the other way if we have to make a win now trade sometimes there's a phrase that Masai Jerry used when he first got to the Raptors uh, and he used it for a few years before you know they started to do the thing where they disappointed in in the playoffs and he, was, he would talk about DeMar DeRozan and Kyle Lowry and Jonas Valanciunas and, and Terrence Ross. We've got to give these guys a platform. We've got to give these guys a platform. And, you know, it's just his way of kicking the cad down the road. Uh, but I think that applies now because I think one of the most salient points Blake made was that trading Siakam at that level made very little sense unless you wanted to blow it up, in which case you're also uh, trading Fred, probably, or, or, or really looking into trading Van Vliet. And the Raptors, more or, or almost as much as any other organization, understand how an undersized, not-that-athletic six-foot guard might be able to age gracefully, uh, especially when he's, uh, you know, I mean, Forget about what he's doing now. He's a very, very good shooter uh, and a very, very good thinker of the game. Uh, so I think basically maybe you want to trim. If we're talking about this trade line, maybe you want to trim on the edges. Maybe you want a bit more offense off the bench if it doesn't cause you a, cost you a first. But long, like you just let the season play out, I think, for the most part. You reassess where you are and you see what, Siakam's value is in the offseason, but you're not in any need to trade the guy, especially I think last 15 games, he's averaging something like 23, nine and a half and five uh, with that great defense. He's He's been really, really good. He, he He's kind of point guarding or co-point yeah. guarding the lineups when Fred Van Vliet. Yeah, him bench. and Barnes are, are the co-point guards, but Pascal's the one who can dribble. 
with all due respect to Scotty Barnes, and that will be obviously a major point of his development in the offseason is, you know, you're a wonderful passer. Let's work on the handle so we can further weaponize that passing. Uh, but I'm glad you brought that up because I watched the Raptors and Scotty Barnes finishes with like 17 points, seven rebounds, six assists. And I'm like, and, and I watched the game. And I, I pay attention to the game. I've watched the whole thing. And at the end, I'm, I think, how did he get 17? Like, what did he do to get 17 points? Because it's like, I don't really remember, like, really smooth-looking pick and rolls. I don't remember, like, awesome post-ups into fadeaway jump. Like, how did he just kind of gets to his spots? He's an okay mid-range. I, he just finds ways to get 15 points. I don't really know how he does They're it. They're running, like, I haven't looked at the numbers in the last few days, but... Uh, I, at The Athletic, I did a rookie roundtable with Kelsey Russo and James Edwards about sort of the big three rookies, with all apologies to Franz Wagner, Wagner and uh, Josh Giddy about uh, Barnes, Mobley, and Cade Cunningham. And like he's nowhere near Cu- Cunningham in terms of finishing uh, pick and rolls as a handler. He's nowhere near Mobley as finishing pick and rolls uh, as, a, as the role man. And he is like... A transition guy. He's a garbage man, kind of. He's really good at getting his own rebound. And I think that's what makes your big picture question so interesting because, sure, the question is how good will Scotty Barnes be? But the question is also what type of player will Scotty Barnes be? And I don't think. I know what he's best at now. I don't know what he's going to be best at uh, in three years. Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting question, and in terms of his points, I think it's a little it's a little less pressing, right? Like like Eric, the stat you're referring to is thirty one point eight percent of his possessions so far have been transition and offensive rebounds. Those are unscripted, completely just seat of his pants. You have the instincts, you have the ability to play in the open court. Just go get it, and that's great. I think. It's so important, especially if you want to stay good and you don't want to bottom out, that a guy like Scotty Barnes can fit in and find spots like that to get his points um, kind of improvisationally like that because you don't have to rewire a lot of what you do for him. Um, But to your earlier point, Eric, about the playmaking is, yeah, I think right now we see that playmaking in transition uh, stand out a lot more than in the half court. And that's not to say there haven't been possessions. He's thrown some like one hand skip passes in the pick and roll. And it's like, where did that come from? How did you even see that? Uh, But there are also a fair amount of like, he runs a pick and roll or, or he's on the handler side of a DHO and there's just nothing really there because the handle's kind of loose and he doesn't have the the instinct yet for how to create there. So, um, you know, I think it's, I, I always think it's a good sign if a guy can put up 15, 17 quietly and you don't notice it. And, and especially if those assists are coming quietly. Um, but I do think, yeah, if we're talking about how do you get more out of Scotty Barnes you know, by the time this team's ready to compete, that half-court playmaking, Eric, is is probably the piece. And it's not just what kind of player he becomes, which I think is important because if he actually is a, a point whatever, then you can really go all in on this, let's just get a bunch of 6'8 dudes and play crazy future basketball. If you, if you need a traditional point guard, which they have right now in Fred, then you're going to have one guy who doesn't fit that mold size-wise. Whether that matters or not is, is unclear. It matters to me stylistically just because I want to see the coolest, weirdest possible team on the floor. But it's also when 
is he going to be that kind of player, right? Is he going to be that kind of player when Pascal Siakam's 32 or 31? Or can he get to that point where when Pascal and, and, and Freddie are 30 and still really squarely in their primes? Blake, when did you – was the pick – was the was the Barnes pick a shocker on draft night? Because that's the pick that sort of cements to me. Maybe they kind of like they got Siakam at twenty seven, I think, and Anobi at twenty three. So you sort of just you're picking in the twenties. You get the guy you like the best. They happen to fit this mold of rangy long wings. Picking Barnes there is a statement of not only we like that player better, but we kind of like that model of player better. So how much in Toronto? How much of a shock was it? That they took Barnes for. Yeah, it was at least a, a moderate one. Like, there was chatter out there. We did a pair of mock drafts at The Athletic, and in one of them I took Scotty Barnes with the Raptors pick, um, and people were very unhappy with me. And I, it wasn't a, like, I think they're going to take him. It was more of a, I want to see how this plays out, and I want to see if I can leverage Josh Robbins, who's picking for the Magic, into giving me an asset to get Scotty Barnes or something like that. But it was enough that, like, I didn't feel completely out of pocket picking him in a mock draft at the Athletics. So um, it was still a surprise, though, because so many draft people who, look, Eric and I can do all the prep we want to get ready for the Raptors draft. And the the kind of pandemic seasons have allowed us to do that even more. But we're not going to have a, as good a feel for these guys as the the draft people who are, you know, John, John Giovanni, who who's, you know, looking at this stuff every single day. And that's the whole that's the whole job. And when those people say, hey, this looks like a bit of a four-person draft and then there's a drop-off and we're hearing that maybe – and I heard two versions of this. I heard the version where it's a three-person draft. They'd really like to get move up to get Mobley and then you know they see Suggs in the tier below with Scotty Barnes and that's where you're splitting hairs. And then the other version is, oh, they saw it as a five-player draft. So it's really just – do you want to elevate Barnes? Do you want to knock Suggs down? Either either way, um, there was at least a little bit of chatter enough that, like, we had stuff prepped on Barnes for draft night. It just, you know, until you hear that name, you think you're just kind of over-preparing, I guess. is the, You don't want to be caught in a Bruno situation again where you have no notes on the guy, uh, so you're ready to go. So I would say at least a, a mild shock. Where is Bruno? Playing in Brazil, I think. I hope he's living out. I hope he's living his best life. Got in that first first round no, contract, baby. Masai gets no no pushback for the Bruno pick, and I think that's by the way correct. You brought a title to Toronto, and some of those picks, if you take shots, are going to miss. That was a shot on another six eight positionless dude, um, and it didn't work out. That's fine. The one, the pick, by the way, that hurts right now is not that one. It's Malachi Flynn over Desmond Bain. They're one of like 55 yep. <laughs> teams with Desmond Bain envy, including international teams, I guess. So I agree with both of you. I am in no hurry to break up this team. I think the Raptors are are, are decent. I think this six-game winning streak, I, I, I need to put the brakes on myself because Toronto is 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 has sort of fallen into – the strangest position ever where they have no fans, but also the greatest home court advantage possible in the NBA where teams are not bringing their best players into the country for fear of a positive test popping in Toronto. So they've got a little lucky schedule, but I think this team is decent. And like, what is, like, what is, what is one, what is trading Pascal Siakam for draft picks doing for me? Like I'm getting draft picks. Sure. But I'm, I'm not going to be that bad. I'm, I'm letting this team ride. I think they're decent. 
Like I said, they're uh, uh, seventh in the East with spitting distance of third. They are ninth in offense. That's a shocker. Ninth in offense. 20th in defense is like also a minor shocker the other way. So, Eric, I'll start with you. Just just how good is this team actually? And what's the biggest thing? Like if they want to ascend to we, we, we avoid the play-in and we're actually a semi-frisky first-round opponent, what's the biggest thing that has to improve for them in the last 40 games? Um, first of all, I don't really get why teams are afraid to send their players to Canada, especially with the shortened... Uh, the shortened protocols. Uh, what's the difference in being in a hotel room in Toronto and Boston or, or, or uh, anyway, that's besides the point. I don't think it should be a huge deal. I think it's been a convenient excuse for uh, only two teams have notably done it, Golden State and Utah. And then Utah lost on the back end of a back-to-back against Indiana as well. So uh, as you like to say, Zach, don't uh, don't mess with the basketball gods or or the protocol gods, as it might be. And Toronto, Toronto, another win in the streak, just to put a bow on that, was in Milwaukee, no Giannis. So that, and that has nothing to do, obviously. Yeah, no, the last six the, wins have all been with, with their opponents missing a very important, if not their best player. Even San Antonio didn't have DeJounte Murray. Um, in terms of the thing they need to improve on the most, I think it's got to be defense. And I asked Nick Nurse and wrote about it uh, for Monday in The Athletic. And they just don't have the reps, I think, to know what to do when they're not switching. Uh, And so some of the stuff that's happening on pick and rolls, what's like, how much attention goes to the roll man? How much, how far am I leaving the guy in the corner? Like, sometimes, like, I'm always surprised when I look at the opponent three-point numbers and they're not quite as bad as I expect because it seems like they're, there are games where they're just getting, it's corner three, corner three, corner three, above the break three to elite shooter. Like, it seems like that's the game. But, like, the the major things for them are offensive re, or defensive rebounding. Before last night, they were the worst defensive rebounding team in the league by a hair. And uh, fouling, which has been a problem of theirs for years. And I think as they play like this, which is aggressive ball pressure, is going to continue to be a problem. So the one, I don't know if it's correctable, but the biggest issue, I would say, is defensive rebounding. But I don't think they're going to say, well, let's get a seven-footer to solve that problem. Because I think playing Kem Birch and playing Precious Achua, and more to the point, playing Ananobi Siakam and Barnes across the front line... Like, that is a feature, not a bug, of what they're doing this year. So if it comes with a sacrifice, then that's fine. They don't want to be 30th, but the experiment is such that it requires finding out the limits of, of what they can do with this, I think. Yeah, they're they're trying kind of for dearth of, like, amazing offensive talent or spacing like the the half court offense is is clunky even when fred's in the game i think it's a bottom 10 half court offense they're trying to win the possession game right so they're they're one of the lowest turnover teams in the league on offense and i think they forced the second most on defense there's four possessions right there they're number two in offensive rebounding we can talk about this one of the things that makes them interesting is they've gone all in i mean they are all the way in crashing the offensive glass. You can crash from the top of the arc. You can crash from the corners. There are rules. I'm sure there are strict rules that I just haven't really cared enough to figure out. 
but they are crashing from all directions, not all directions, but lots of directions, but they're undermining the possession advantage by being 29th in, in defensive rebounding. I don't know, Blake. I don't watch this team. I get what Eric is saying. They are giving up lots of threes. Giving up lots of threes has been a feature of Nick Nurse's defense for three years now, right? I mean, that's they were sort of on the forefront of that with the Bucks of like, we're going to give you a lot of threes. We're even going to give you a lot of corner threes because we want to protect the rim. And we think we got a bunch of really fast, really jumpy 6A guys who are going to freaking scare you when they're closing out. I, I don't look at this. I'm, surpri- I'm still surprised they're 20th in defense. And if I had to bet, I bet they get into the top half of the league within the next 15 or 20 games. But Blake, am I, am I being too optimistic? Have I just seen all the right games where they're switching and there's just no place to go against this marauding group of 6'8 guys? Am I, am I, am I being too optimistic? No, I, I think that's totally reasonable. And you see, you know, what are they doing these trade-offs for? And it's not just the closeout intensity. It's that they lead the league in forced turnovers. And that fuels one of the league's best transition games. So you talk about how the half-court offense is shaky, and it is. It's it's really shaky. But they are the number two team in the league in terms of transition frequency because they force more turnovers than everyone. So I do think that there's a, a kind of offensive def- offense-defense trade-off here in the way they're built that's a little hard to kind of separate one from the other because they're taking all these gambles in order to help fuel what's otherwise a shaky offense. So um, the second layer of that is like, yeah, okay, you take those gambles and now to Eric's point, as you get the familiarity and as you, you kind of massage the rotation or figure out who goes where, you know, you not scale it back necessarily, but you know how to fill those gaps a little bit. You know how, Hey, if I'm Gary Trent and I gamble here and I miss, I'm not floating up on the wing where there's a non-threatening shooter. I have to collapse back, you know, to the paint to to help on the defensive glass because the other thing is the Raptors are quote unquote small in the sense that they don't play an actual center most of the time, but they're also gigantic at every other position. Like at two, three, four, they almost always have a size edge. So when I see the like, Oh, they're 29th in defensive rebounding. um, That's because they don't have a center. They're also bigger at every other position. So uh, I'd like to see that come up a little bit. They're gigantic. They're gigantic. And I wrote about this on Friday. Like Teams know how to play against switches, right? And and fewer and fewer teams. The old way to play against switches used to be find a mismatch and post that guy up. Part of the value of being huge is there is no guy to post up on the Raptors. You can't just go post up OG Ananobi or Scotty Barnes or Pascal. There's nobody there other than Fred sometimes. But part of it is like teams now, instead of doing that, they like slip screens and back cut. And there's all these – and that stuff works in that – for a second, a half a second, there's a, a passing lane or a window. And the Raptors work because their other three guys, all they need to do is extend their arms. And that window is like, oh, that, that ain't there. I can't, I can't make that pass. So to, to your point, they are absolutely enormous on the wings. It's funny, they they had, um, or they have rather, DJ Wilson for a second hardship exemption right now, and I know he wasn't in the picture, but it reminded me, their defense in general reminds me of that old Milwaukee Bucks picture, where John Henson, Giannis, and one other, and I think Chris Middleton are stretched out across the entire three-point arc with their arms out wide, and it like takes up almost all the space, and I think that that's the idea here defensively, right, is that like spacing's not just are you spacing out the floor with three-point shooters? It's how can you like functionally operate the space that you do create? And the Raptors seem to be betting that arms are a really good way to disrupt that space. And I, I would also say regarding your optimism, Zach, like 
Siakam, you're right about his defense, but his first 10 games back, I think we noticed it mostly on his defense, his rustiness. Maybe that, you know, that's just a conditioning basketball thing. OG Ananobi missed a month of the season, and I think all things being equal, he's still their best perimeter defender, uh, or, or at least, you know, big wing defender. So I think them playing... Like, we're just getting this six-game winning streak. Yeah, it has a lot to do with the opponents, but it also has a lot to do with, you know, Van Vliet, Siakam, and Adenobi are basically healthy for the first time this year. They've played nine games together the whole season. They've appeared in nine games. And I'm glad you bring up Adenobi because Pascal's kind of, has been kind of polarizing, it seems to me, among Raptors fans. Um, And Fred is beloved and, you know, bet on yourself, you know, all that, like Fred's, I think, a deserving all-star likely this year. Um, Scotty Barnes, I mean, no one is more beloved than a rookie exceeding expectations. Everybody, OG is kind of like, I, what should we think of OG Anano? Because I feel like he's now, at the beginning of the year, there was a lot of, including in, in one of my columns, a lot of like the OG Anano, a potential breakout star. Then he gets hurt again, and it's just sort of like, okay, we, we don't, we're not talking about him anymore. He's averaging 19 a game. Like, what exactly is is he, can he still be a future All-Star? Like, how should we regard him? I kind of don't know. Yeah, it's it's difficult, and it's because it's just not happening on this team, right? Like, before he went out, basically as soon as Siakam came back, which, like, and so how do these two giant, and the thing that's sort of been... The defining trait of most All-Stars is their ability to put the ball on the floor and create for themselves or others. And that hasn't been Ananobi's role. He did that a lot more to start the season, but that's because Siakam was out in large part. And then he, Siakam came back and all of a sudden he was out. So I think it's there. It's still a lot clunkier than than it is with Siakam. Like Siakam, it just has a better handle. But, but what Ananobi has but- is strength mechanical yeah. mechanical is the word that yeah, I have but in like my and i'm not comparing but like people said that about Kawhi leonard for years and years and years i don't think og ananobi is going to be Kawhi leonard as much as you know raptors twitter would love it but you don't not every player has to be like smooth and elegant like he when he goes up with with balance and that was a huge problem in his first few years but like there are very few guys who can hang with him physically just from a pure strength standpoint. And it's to the point where he'll get post-ups and he'll back in and he's taking turnaround jumpers where he's still landing in inside the paint because nobody can physically stop him from getting that sort of position. So I don't know, like, could he be a second or a 1A or a 1B on a team? Like, I don't think that's his best role just because his defense is so good. But I think he could be. And I... I I think there is that all-star ceiling. I, I'd probably lean toward no all-star games at this point versus one all-star game. But, I mean, it's easy to get trapped in the moment. I, I would take the over on 0.5 all-star games. I think I think Anunoby, I don't know if I would take the over on 1.5 or 2.5, but 0.5 I'm taking the over. I think if he can just stay healthy, I think he's going to have like a 15-game run where – it's going to be like, oh my God, is this is this guy capable? Now, and then it won't last, and then he'll slump again. But I think somewhere along the line in the next, maybe hopefully this season, he's going to have a 10 or 12 game stretch 
where the national attention is all of a sudden like, whoa, hey, look what this guy's doing. Blake, what do you think on OG? Yeah, I think this six-game winning streak is such a perfect encapsulation of it where, you know, and we're guilty of this too. I, I tweeted out after the, the game on Sunday, Van Bleed and Siakam averaging a combined 54.8 points during this six-game win streak and doing so pretty efficiently. Well, guess what? OG's averaged over 18 a game during that stretch too. and It's, is, it's the is, quietest 19 points a game in the NBA right now. And he's at like 47-40-88 for shooting splits. So like not 50-40-90, but he's been lethally Ooh. efficient. And the thing that we've seen, if you dive into the stats of OG, Pascal, Fred, and Scotty have still only played 129 minutes together, um, so tiny sample. But what we see in that is OG kind of turns back into previous OG where it's a, it's a much higher share of his shots are coming from the three-point line. They're using him more as a spot-up guy when they have all their pieces together, which you understand a little bit. But I think that's where some of the, the narrative up and down comes from in addition to the injuries is that he's the guy I think. And I think this is a credit to him because he's comfortable doing this and can kind of play both roles. He's the guy whose role kind of is on a pendulum, depending on who's available as well. Um, and not, not everyone could go from being a 25% usage guy to a 70% usage guy, depending on who's available. Um, so I think that's a credit to Ananobi's flexibility. Yeah, this year it's probably that and, and the injuries have cost him an all-star, but 19, five, two and a half and almost two steals a game. Like you're not far off if you're on a team that's winning, that's on a 50 win pace, right? Um, you know, you nudge those up just a little bit, you stay healthy and your team gets on just a little bit faster of a pace. I'd take the over on 0.5 as well. I just think one of the reasons I think the Raptors are super interesting is we always talk about defense and offense as separate entities when really they're intertwined and they affect each other. And I think that's clearest with Toronto than with any other team in the NBA. Just as an example, when you have made an organizational decision of we're going to crash the hell out of the offensive glass, that works for them because their transition defense is really, really good, even when they may be at a personnel disadvantage, like a two-on-three or three-on-four. It's really good because, A, they're huge, so they can fly at people, and, B, the, as because they have so many guys who are the same size, they don't have to look around and be like, "Who? Oh, i got to get to the guy I'm guarding. Oh, he's supposed to guard him. Just guard who's ever close to you. Similarly, we talked about their half-court offense being a little clunky. Like they got to kind of grind out some grimy ways to score points. They use their defense or their just sort of identity to create some of those grimy ways. Like if Pascal Siakam is guarding whoever, some little guard on the other team, because that's the matchup you have the luxury of choosing and you get to stop, that little guard goes back on defense like, hey, can someone rescue me? This dude's 6'9". <laughs> I can't guard him. Oh, no, he's already – oh, I'm under the bat. Oh, they, he just scored. And if OG Ananobi switches onto that guy on defense and you get to stop, OG Ananobi can do that. Like they just – they, they're intertwined in, 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 a, in ways that are really interesting to me. But I, I still just think I, – I, I, I worry about their offense in the playoffs and, and, against, and against really good defensive teams. I worry about Fred being undersized and getting enveloped by larger defenders. I, I just I, – I think they're a good team. I think they could definitely get out of the play in, particularly with Cleveland's guard situation being critical at this point. I don't know how seriously I can take them in the playoffs, but and I don't necessarily think they need to really do anything to help their offense. But what 
Eric, I guess I'll start with you. Like, what what are you looking for? for I mean, they're ninth on offense. I kind of don't get how they're ninth on offense other than their transition. They're the number one most frequent transition team in the league, so they get out a lot. But they're half-court offense. Like, what, what can they do there? It's like they have two above-average shooters, or three when you include Adenobi in, in very spot-up heavy situations. And Trent certainly is, is of the streaky variety I would say, and there are just right now, there are so many, and especially when you, we haven't even talked about this team's depth, because why would you? There's hardly any, um, which I, I would, I, I mean, Chris Boucher is actually playing great lately, and I am, you know, if not the captain, the co-captain of the Utah Watanabe fan club, um, and he's been out in, in health and safety and, and should be eligible to come back on Tuesday, I think, but there are so many of those, like especially when it becomes a pick and roll game, as the last few games have become, because the opposing team has Jonas Valanciunas or Hassan Whiteside, and you want to attack those matchups. Well, when you get to the weak side, it's like Boucher and Scotty Barnes, or you know Barnes and Precious Achua, and like there's or Svee, like Svee Mikhailuk is is their answer right now, and you know. He's been fine, but he's not the answer. I, I think we can we can say so. But. He's got to be like top five. You just have no idea what you're getting from that guy when you put him in the game. He could hit three threes in a minute, or he could go zero for nine and give you. Yeah, he's a nothing. he's like a pre Spurs Marco Bellinelli All Star um, f- for sure. So uh, I think what I'd like to see and what I'm most curious. And seeing is like what happens in the half court when the ball's in Scotty Barnes' hand in sort of what I keep on calling the Mark Gasol position, and he and there's just like lots of cut and cuts and off ball movement going on. I'd like to see that yield a few more things because even like we were on availability today on Monday with Fred Van Vliet, and he's saying like I could be on the ball a lot, but I think we all know that that's not the best form of this offense. And he's right. Like, you see, you called him a traditional point guard, and he is. He has the ball plenty, but this team wants Pascal Siakam creating and kicking to Fred Van Vliet or to Gary Trent Jr. Uh, And so the way to naturally get that happening more is to have the ball in Siakam's hands, or and Siakam could do it a number of ways in the half court, but right now it's really you know there's a bit of post creation from Scotty Barnes, but it's more him at sort of the top of the arc at the free throw line with off ball movement. So I think that's getting more intricate. There is probably the way to go to spice up what they're doing. Have they already won the Gary Trent for Norm Powell trade? I love that trade. That's a really fun trade for both teams. I like Gary Trent is he can really shoot. He's got a little old school mid range game. He's got big cojones, as Tim McMahon would say. That's an interesting trade. But how has either of you done the the oral history of the Gravis Vasquez trade? <laughs> that that trade needs like a four thousand word oral history for people who don't know. The Raptors somehow swindled the Bucks into taking Gravis Vasquez in exchange for a first-round pick that became Anunoby 
and a second round pick that became Norm Powell, who is now Gary. How here's, does that happen? Here's why that understand. oral history can't happen. First of all, Messiah Jerry will never uh, say Gravis. anything on the record. <laughs> Uh, yeah, Gravis might be the entire oral history. He'll just talk for, he'll do a 20 minute monologue and that will be the oral history. But also John Hammond, I believe was the Bucks GM at that time. And now he's the top, uh, aide to Jeff Weltman, who was, you know, Masai Jerry's closest friend in basketball pretty much. So, uh, I don't think that's going to happen unless we're leaning heavily on the OG Adenobi quotes, which, uh, seems, seems worrisome <laughs> from, uh, from my perspective. You ask Gravis about it, and he's going to, I guarantee, he starts with, well, you see, a couple seasons before I had led the league in assists, it's, which is basically his catchphrase when with he was With the Pelicans, right? Or were they still? Yeah, yeah, yeah um, they were the Hornets at that point, I think, still. But, yeah, he had 700 well, assists that year. One of the reasons I like talking to you guys is there are, I'm going to conservatively say, 38 people in the world who still have fond memories of the Raptors bench mob involving DeLon Wright and Siakam and Pirtle. And like three, three of them are here right now. And Eric Kareen, you it's going to be 2050. And somehow you're going to find a way to refer to Ed Davis as boss without even his <laughs> last name. You'll just tweet starting for the Cavs tonight. Darius Garland are like available for the Cavs tonight and just boss. And the number of Raptors fans who get that is dwindling, but I Look, admire the fact that you do not care. Just like I don't care that people don't get my Seinfeld jokes anymore. They're, I'm still I making I want to reward the people who have been paying attention. That's what like any good, you know, let's, let's face it. We're providing entertainment for the people, whether it's, you know, fancy stats entertainment or narrative-based entertainment. We're, you know... It's it's just a television show, so let's reward the people who really care. That, that's that's what I'm saying. Yeah, that's by the end of the first run of Arrested Development before they did the reboots, it was basically just all winks to the audience that had stuck around at that point. It's fine. And hey, it's not like Ed Davis is irrelevant. Didn't I see his contract got guaranteed for the rest of the season the other day? Yeah, veteran veteran it leader. Did. That's that's a real thing. Um, Ed Davis, get that playoff share, baby. All right, well, before I let you guys go, I'll just open the floor to either of you. Is there any element of this team or this franchise that, that we have not discussed yet? It sounds like we all sort of agree holding pattern, and that's good. And this team has an interesting single-season upside, next-season upside. They've played – I'm looking it up now. They've played the fourth-toughest schedule in the league. It's been a little heavy on home games for whatever that means for the <laughs> Raptors. I don't know, but whatever. They've played a tough schedule. I don't put too much stock into playoff odds and all that, but they've got a decent chance of being in the top six. Is there either of you, before we close, is there any aspect of this team, any player we haven't talked about that you think is particularly salient? Yeah, I think the most interesting thing about them for this next month is are they a completely stand pat team or are they a tweak at the margins team? And and this doesn't include Dragic, who, you know, they're going to, flip him for matching salary in a second, or they're going to buy him out after with enough wiggle room to be able to sign a, a 14th and 15th guy under the tax. Like one of those things will happen. I don't think it's really related to what we're talking about here, but you look at this team and right now they start that really interesting five man lineup when everyone's healthy. And then three of their top four guys off the bench are quote unquote, small centers or large power forwards. So there's obviously an imbalance there, which you can maybe resolve by starting Ken Birch and bringing Gary Trent Jr. off the bench. But Gary Trent Jr. <laughs> has like overperformed that discussion at this point. Like, like you work that out with rotations and stuff. You don't, you don't demote, quote unquote, demote 
Gary Trent Jr. to the bench. Um, but what you maybe look at is like a guy like Chris Boucher. We talk about the timeline of Siakam and Van Vliet. Boucher turns 29 on Tuesday and he's on an expiring contract. He would come with bird rights if you trade him. And I don't, I don't love the the value management of, of giving up on a guy like Malachi Flynn a year and a half into his career. But if you're not going to trust him with backup point guard minutes, even when you're really, really thinned out, maybe the move is you try to find a home for Boucher that gets you back, you know, a, a functional bench guard so that you can balance out those two units a little bit and have a little less playmaking responsibility on your big wings if you get to a playoff situation. So that's not, I'm not saying that's necessarily has to be done, but I do think it's an interesting discussion for the Raptors of like, hey, are we standing pat, standing pat, or do we think we're good enough that, you know, there's a there's a basketball trade to be made here that doesn't pull from future assets, but maybe isn't entirely, like it can be present oriented as well. Not that they need any more big men, but how about the how is there a way that we, Toronto can get Terrence Ross back in town for a little a little coda to his career? Not that the Magic need any more big guys. Terry but. time. Go ahead. Uh, that would be great. Send Ken Birch back. That would be great. <laughs> uh, I'd be all about that. Uh, I don't. You know, I just thinking. Uh, I mean, why do the Magic? do that anyway we don't need to do a thought experiment on, on chris boucher for terrence ross maybe uh, although who, who knows maybe it will be more relevant chris boucher was the guy i was gonna mention and you know a lot of credit to him because like he was so good last year for what he was and he was like the only positive along with watanabe in, in terms of like the tampa raptors or, or one of the very few i would say and he was just lost for the start of this year and he's really you know i've always doubted his ability to play for 15 to 20 minutes a night and really make an impact in that way. And he's found a way, even though his three-point shot has, has basically disappeared. But that's like the one contract they have. If they want to pair it with Kem Birch, uh, like I don't see that happening, but that gets you to $13 million and maybe there's a deal to be made there. Um, yeah, uh, I, I think... You want an upgrade on the Svi Utah Watanabe guy. Like you want that you want that upgrade, but I you know, are you throwing in an asset to do that? I doubt it. I like that we're talking about them as a potential buyer, which I think is appropriate. I think that's that's more appropriate than the sort of popular is this the year they tear it down, is this the year they tear it down. However, before we close, it does strike me we should we should bring up one name that hasn't been mentioned yet, and that's Ben Simmons. It, it they've been on the Ben Simmons, you know, rumor list for ages and ages and ages, um, there were lots of rumors about the Sixers making preposterous asks around the draft. Um, is there anything there, Blake? If it, we'll start with you. Any, any, anything there at all? I mean, look, it makes sense spiritually as you're building this team full of enormous defenders who can handle from the wing and, and you know, you don't care about shooting limitations and stuff like that. I get it. Like, Ben Simmons is the guy that fits the Raptors mold. But in terms of like a trade that actually makes sense, I don't see it. Like, I don't think there's a Siakam Simmons challenge trade kind of thing there. I don't, I certainly don't think what we were hearing rumblings about in the off season is anything close to something like if, if you're talking Fred and OG in that deal, I don't, I don't think the Raptors are having that conversation. Um, and then they don't like on the other end, I don't think they're going to give up a guy like Barnes for that. So then if Philly's looking a little more future-oriented, you don't have the the prospect capital really to make that happen. So I would be 
flabbergasted if the Raptors were involved in Ben Simmons. Yeah, as uh, Blake put it to me when we were discussing it in the offseason, like, why trade away all the players you'd want playing with Ben Simmons uh, if you're the Raptors? Like, you want OG Adenobi and Fred VanVleet specifically because they fit ra- well around Ben Simmons. And, I mean, they would also fit around <laughs> well around Joel Embiid. Uh, but I... I I don't, especially with the way Barnes has played, like, why? Oh, no, no. He, no, he's no, I'm just saying, table. like, Barnes. You're just talking in yeah, terms Barnes of Yeah, Barnes does, like, yeah. you know, you hope the eventual version of Barnes does a lot of what Ben Simmons does. And it, it just seems, you know, it seems clunky to me. It doesn't, it, it made sort of, it made some sense at one point. I think it's made less sense as we've gotten further away from, from the start of the year. He's not that much younger or that much better than either Van Vliet or Ananobi, let alone both, for me to think that makes all that much sense for the Raptors. I I do think his ceiling is the highest of the three and maybe easily. Um, But uh, obviously the questions are enormous. We don't have to relitigate what those questions are now. I I would, from what I've heard, I think, the Simmons side of the equation would be fine with a deal to Toronto or welcome a deal to Toronto. I I just don't see anything. I'm with you guys. I don't really see anything there. Well, look, I I miss Toronto a lot. I have a soft spot for Toronto. I I miss Jack Armstrong and Matt Devlin. Um, I miss miss the Raptor, my buddy the Raptor. I hope to see everybody soon. But I got to tell you, this is not just the Toronto Nerd Fest. Anyone who likes basketball, this team is doing some interesting stuff on the floor right now. Give them a watch. Maybe Jack Armstrong will give you a good false. Get that coverage out of here. Blake and Eric, you guys are just absolutely bang up at your job. I look forward to getting a beer at one of the local Firkins when the world allows for it. Stay safe and enjoy the Raptors. Thank you, guys. Thanks for having me, Zach. Uh, I look forward to that as well. Thanks, Zach. And uh, see you, Bruce. <laughs> you never get back on now. No, you're done, Bruce. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.